0: but it's curiosity as to where we are, what we the are. existence, the physical universe, is basically playful.
1: Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Human. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew J. Taggart, a practical philosopher, Zen Buddhist, and entrepreneur, urging us to wake up to what we've so far taken for granted. In this conversation, we discuss the thesis of his Total Work Manifesto, and why we use our work and productivity to fuel our sense of self-worth and create meaning in our lives as well as his ideas on how we might break out of this total work prison that he calls the way of loss and the way of wonderment i should also mention that about an hour and a half in i ask andrew to imagine an all hands on deck academy or maybe a series of learning experiences to become whole and integrated humans and his answer is absolutely fascinating. And the next morning after our conversation, he wrote up a slightly longer version of this, which he's posted on his blog with the title A Tentative Curriculum for Psychotechnologies of Self-Transformation. So I would thoroughly recommend following Andrew on Twitter and also subscribing to his ongoing Total Work book, which is being published on Substack, just like QS Humans*. And you can find the links to all of this in the show notes. Okay, please enjoy this deep dive chat with the wise and warm-hearted Andrew J. Taggart. Hello, curious humans. I'm here with Andrew J. Taggart, a seasonally nomadic, Zen Buddhist, rock climbing, practical philosopher, and author of a new book in progress called Total Work. And I was thinking about how best to introduce Andrew uh, beyond, beyond his bio and there was a his poem that came to mind that I wanted to share and it goes as follows. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows while the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. And I think of the unifying thread of Andrew's work as being kind of like that of a modern sage, crafting keys for these rowdy prisoners who either can't think their way out, their way out of the cages or maybe don't even realize that they're, they're kind of trapped there in the first place. Um, so welcome, Andrew, to the Curious Humans podcast.
0: Oh, thank you very much for having me and for the very sweet introduction. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So before we get into the, the world of total work, I, I have a habit of opening these conversations by asking, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you maybe tell me a story about something that you were curious about? I think I became
0: more and more curious as I got older. I'll tell you a story that's slightly different from the question that you asked. <laughs>
2: <Sure>.
0: <laughs> I'll tell you a story about ennui or boredom because that's exactly what comes to mind. When I was a young child, I had two older sisters, both of whom were involved in sports and other activities and both of my parents worked and you know, will get around to work. I'm sure at some point here, mm-hmm. therefore I was on my own to a considerable degree. I, I did have friends, but I was a little bit strange <laughs> <laughs> in ways that probably weren't clear to my parents or my sisters or to others. And therefore I had a lot of time by myself. Mm-hmm. You would think that I would be <laughs> glowering and, 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 uh, the, the, the nature of the cosmos here, but quite the contrary, I tended to be quite bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a consequence, I would make up games for myself. Uh, and I think it's out of an encounter with boredom and out of, um, therefore, the, the uh, appreciation of imagination that over time I became more and more curious. So I don't know that I was a curious child, uh, more curious than any other child, but certainly as time went on, I began to wake up to the curiosities that involved looking at those prison cells Mm -hmm. that I hadn't realized that I myself had been in as well. So the story really picks up when I'm around 29 and (laughs) my life takes a very
1: different turn from what had been happening up until that point. Mm -hmm. And did you have any, um, any favorite books or maybe games um, growing up that come to mind?
0: Yes, I, uh, the games are mostly sports. I grew up in a Protestant family in the northern part of the United States, the state of Wisconsin. Uh, so we were inundated with sports. And I actually loved, and <laughs> I'm a bit sad, I love the discipline involved in, in, in sports. Hmm. My father and I would go outside from a young age, and depending on the season, we would be playing baseball or basketball or, or football, and there was something really quite uh, Taoist or Zen about his asking me to turn to the side and his throwing a football over and over again in the same direction <laughs> so that I could actually cultivate it. <laughs> the capacity to catch a ball in a particular sort of way, in particular, <laughs> at a particular, particular trajectory, <laughs> you would think that that seems like humdrum drill, but I, I really uh, loved it. Um, so that was really one side of my life from a young age, that is learning a certain kind of discipline uh, and, and through, in and through playing sports. The other side, though, was my introduction to liberal arts in high school. At some point, I really became fond of the works of jane austen uh, there's a There's a joke by the i don't I don't know if your listeners are going to get this, but i'm going to tell it anyway <laughs> there, there's there's a joke there's a joke by the, the late philosopher of science Gilbert Ryle uh, I'll tell the punchline and then I'll tell you what this joke means <laughs> and he and, and, you know, he's an analytic philosopher, and therefore you don't expect him to read much in the way of novels at one point in time. So someone at one point asks him, "Do you read uh, any novels?" And he said, "Yes, each year, all five. <laughs> and <laughs> all right, so here's, here's the meaning of it: it's, uh, Jane Austen wrote five novels before before she before her untimely death. So he's 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 you know he's alerting us to the fact that Jane Austen is quite a, an impressive moral philosopher of a certain kind, and I I think that's right.
2: Uh,
0: so. Even though there are people called Jainites who have become accustomed to reading Jane Austen novels and swooning over the romance, it's not really what the books are about. They're about uh, they're about the moral development of the main characters who have to go through some pretty fundamentally challenging experiences in order to come to a place of love and self understanding. So I've learned probably more from those books than I have from, from many others I've read. Later on, I turned to philosophy, but uh, mm. there's something really quite striking uh, about Jane Austen's novels that stays with me even today.
2: Mm. Mm,
1: wonderful. Um, and I, I love that you, you described yourself um, in one of your posts as a seeker devoted to coming to recognize your true nature. And I I guess at at what point did, um, perhaps when you turned 29, but did your kind of curiosity turn inwards towards investigating the the nature of mind and and all of these things? Yeah, I planted that seed, didn't I? It was like a little story (laughs) time. (laughs) (laughs) That was a a hook.
0: I I took the bait. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think it's... uh... (laughs) Well, I mean, there. I could just tear that whole point up and say that it's it's impossible to know. Some people will say that you're always already on the path and everything in life is in some respects a kind of teaching. Mm. Uh, so there's one way of telling the story, which is completely unhelpful and unclear, but interesting nonetheless. The other way is the way I'll, I'll go for it. <laughs> Uh, things really do change quite considerably when I come 29 up until that point I had been going through American academic institutions one after the other I finished an undergraduate degree I immediately went to graduate school I finished a PhD and so it looks as though I'm on the course or the path to being an academic or a scholar Um, but that <laughs> but I diverged from that path at the age of 29. I deposit my dissertation, I sit there in the winter time, and I summarily realized, though I couldn't put it into words then, that I really had no idea absolutely no idea what my life was about, or mm-hmm. why I was here, or why I was doing any of this. But what was abundantly clear is that I wasn't going to continue along the path I'd been on. This is what Gurdjieff, the wonderful Armenian mystic, would call waking up to once having been an automaton, which is not mm-hmm. too far from the, the way you described it at the outset. It, I, when I use the word wake up here, I don't mean wake up in a Buddhist sense. Mm-hmm. I mean something of... Not quite as dramatic. Yet. I mean, becoming conscious of what hitherto one had not been conscious of. Mm-hmm. One, one becomes conscious of having lived the life according to certain scripts that were not of one's choosing or devising. So that's the moment when I would say I wake up to philosophy. I find the writings of Pierre Adot, who, uh, who was a French philosopher up until 2010. And I see in these writings less dense academic prose, which was the case and more a beautiful vision of what it would mean to lead a philosophical life.
2: Hmm.
0: He was providing us or is providing us in these books with the, the, the essence of philosophy, which is the, the, the seeking of wisdom, the, desire to live a wise life, not just on one's own, but among other people. Therefore, he takes us back to these ancient Greek schools, such as that of the Platonists or the Aristotelians or the Epicureans or the Stoics, none of which need detain us here, simply in order to shine lights on these various scholas, these various schools, these various sanghas, these various... Mm. Community, communities of practitioners who are devoted above all else to, to being wise, to mm. leading the, the best possible human life. And I thought this was really quite astounding and very different from <laughs> <laughs> what I learned so far in modern schools. Mm. And it's at this point that my life really takes a turn toward the philosophical life, the, the, the life of sagacity, the life of wisdom. Mm. And at that point, I become a genuine seeker.
2: Hmm.
0: It's in 2014, <laughs> I think <it's> like a <laughs> turn.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, please, please keep going.
2: <laughs>
0: oh, well, I moved to New York in 2009. I, I end up finding a way to philosophize with the people around the world, something we may or may wish not wish to talk about it's in 2014 though that things get a little bit dark because my eldest sister who at the time was 43 was diagnosed with cancer completely mm. out of the blue mm. uh, i'll tell you something that i haven't told on podcast yet i remember having a conversation with her in january of 2014 she received her diagnosis diagnosis rather in december i believe and uh, it was uh, i think the last conversation i had with her and we are just chit-chatting in, in a way, uh, or I'm just talking with her. And she talks about the fact that she and her husband had just planted fruit trees. And I can't remember whether she said, I think that she spoke about the possibility of actually seeing those fruit trees fruit. Mm. And I don't know whether she ever spoke about the possibility of actually tasting the fruit. Uh, it's and, and then she dies. You know, eight weeks later or so what's really profound about the story is that it's 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 all here everything the buddha cared about is, is right here in the story everything he talks about everything the buddhists talk about the five remembrances mm. well, i'm of the nature to grow old there's no way to escape growing old. i'm of the nature to have ill health there's no way to escape having ill health i'm of the nature to die there's no way to escape death and so on it's it's all here in the in this story Mm. it's only later on that I saw that it was all here. And that's. it's at that point that I begin to actually feel or, or taste what Zen calls the great matter of life and death, the great matter of birth and death, mm. the great matter of samsara, uh, it, the great matter of, of realizing that we are subject to various forms of, of very elementary kinds of suffering, uh, which is which I later on call the you know the way of suffering or the way of the pebble in the shoe, uh, and and therefore I begin a second order search. The first order search was for wisdom. The second order search has since been concomitantly for uh, enlightenment or realizing mm-hmm. one's true nature or realizing what one truly is or being at home or discovering abiding peace or whatever one wants to call it it's not really in the name as the Taoists say that the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao the name that can be named is not the eternal name it's so I've gone searching for what is beyond or behind the name
1: for all these things we give to what is ultimate in nature Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, that's really beautiful. And thank you. Thank you for sharing. I, I, I think of those names, I guess, as almost like, almost like signposts to that, um, the, the DAO or the, or the source. And, um, I think of Alan Watts sometimes when he talks about the, the danger of, of fixating or climbing the signposts and mistaking mm-hmm. them for the, for the real thing. Um, and yeah, hearing that, um, I guess hearing some of that backstory gives a bit of context to where I think I first came across your, your work and your writing was probably just just over two, maybe two years ago, through the, um, the essay that was with a very provocative title, If Work Dominated Your Every Moment, Would Life Be Worth Living? And I remember my, my friend sent me this. And as I was reading it through, I felt this like, this almost gut-wrenching knowing that there was this total worker inside my own, my own mind that kind of, you know, occasionally jumped into the, into the driving seat. Um, and one of, the, one of the quotes that really resonated with me was, what is lost in the world of total work is art's revelation of the beautiful, religion's glimpse of eternity, love's analogous joy, and philosophy's sense of wonderment. So I guess by way of setting the stage for any listeners who haven't come across the term before, could you just briefly share the central thesis of, of what is now becoming your your Total Work manifesto?
0: Of course. Let me begin by empathizing with you. I, I came to Total Work out of two basic uh, sources. The first is that I've been speaking with people around the world over these years, and I've begun to become clear about the fact that they are suffering as a consequence of their ideas about what work is and about what it should be. That was one main source. And the other one is a a self-critique or self-investigation, or you might even say a certain kind of self-inquiry. That is, is there a total worker in me? <laughs> I already set mm-hmm. it up by saying that my parents are Protestant, so <laughs> 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 there is. <laughs> and I already told you a story about <laughs> a relishing <laughs> a certain kind of discipline, You're relishing so, the discipline, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not impossible, but, by the way. This is my I'm referring to Max Weber's treatise, The Process Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Mm. Um, maybe we'll, we will or will not come back to that. Weber was one of the first who saw that there could be a relationship with a certain kind of religious sensibility, Protestantism, and a certain uh, worldview, which could be called capitalism. Okay, so we might ask, what is what is total work? Uh, I, I'm drawing from the writings of, of uh, the late philosopher Joseph Pieper, who wrote a short text called leisure, the Basis of Culture. It's from him that I'm I'm taking the term total work and I've since then been elaborating upon it in ways that go, I think, pretty well beyond the the theses he put forward in those very short essays in that book. Mm -hmm. So I would define total work as a world historical process that has been slowly transforming human beings into capital W workers and seemingly nothing else as more and more aspects of life have been transformed into work may mm. help if I expound upon that a little bit the listeners might wonder about the capital W workers emphasis <laughs>
2: uh,
0: I'm trying to I'm trying to give a fresh life, to that word, to that concept. First of all, I understand it in a metaphysical sense, not in a sociological or strictly economic sense. I'm not referring to the, the Marxist working class, though I am referring to them as well. Um, I'm, I'm not referring to a strict sociological category, nor was Pieper. Mm-hmm. When I use the word capital W workers, of concept workers, I'm referring to how we take ourselves essentially to be, to to the question, who am I or who are we? The answer becomes, I am a worker. I am ontologically the same as a worker. I am self-same as the worker. Uh, Who are we? We are workers above Hmm. all else, before all else. That's hard to grasp, I think. And it's, it's, it's a very radical thesis. Uh, Let's make no mistake. uh, And so I think the easiest test would be simply to begin asking oneself some questions. Which are the first thoughts that come to mind in the morning? What sorts of thoughts? So let's be a little meditative about it. What kinds of thoughts uh, and feelings and sense perceptions And sensations do I have over the course of the day? Suppose you were to take a taxonomy of those. Then you'd find it's mostly future-oriented thoughts. Most of them have to do with uh, projects, deadlines, schedules, targets, strategies, meetings, Mm. emails, and so forth. They're they're forms of doing. They're, They're kinds of activities or imagined activities. The feelings <laughs> range variously from entre- what I call entrepreneurial fever.
2: <laughs>
0: to I'm, f- I'm familiar like, with that. With that yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> when people go into have they've had too much coffee and they dream up a startup, right? They're sitting in a coffee <laughs> shop. And, <laughs> right? <laughs> For sure. So they range from entrepreneurial fever to feeling overwhelmed to the modern concept of stress to uh, a later concept of burnout. Mm. but but that's those are just kind of the bigger ones I, i'm also referring to what it feels like in the body it feels tight mm. tensed uh r- restless impatient. again a bit like being in a, in a cage mm. to, to use the to use that metaphor again but without necessarily knowing that there is any other way apart from being in the cage
1: mm. yeah um and <sighs> Do you, do you have like a, a sense of what you think are the, the the underlying drivers maybe of this of this need to to use our work and maybe our productivity to um, like fuel our sense of self-worth and to create meaning and to to fit, to fill our days with these overly packed schedules and strategy meetings? Do you, um, do you have a sense of what is like a few layers beneath that? Yeah,
0: I have, a, <laughs> I have a sense of what i tell be all
2: over <laughs> me. Tell a me can, can
0: <laughs> yeah, let me tell a different story. Uh, uh, um, okay. uh, this will be a broad uh, cosmological story. Hmm. I'll draw from the beautiful books of Raymond Panikar, who was at once a mystic and an incredibly erudite scholar living in the 20th century. I think he died in 2010. One could have a whole episode on on his life because it's so amazingly variegated and and beautiful. But I'll just refer to two books that he's written, among many others. One book is called The Rhythm of Being, and the other book is called Cosmotheandric Experience. Wow, what a title.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Amazing. <laughs> and, I'll, and I think I'll, I'll draw from the, whole, the latter book <laughs> with the amazing title <laughs> to try to show us how we may have gotten here. He suggests that there are three basic questions that uh, human beings ask themselves. One has to mm-hmm. do with the nature of the cosmos. So we might ask, what is reality? these are my own parsings of his, of his basic orientations. Mm-hmm. So the cosmo theandric vision, cosmo theandric experience. The second one is theos or the, the nature of the gods or God or the divine. So mm-hmm. we can ask ourselves, what is divine or sacred or holy? Or what is Brahman or, or, or what is God? And so forth. And we can ask ourselves thirdly, um, what is anthropos, what is man or being human or, or, or this kind of life we call human. Mm. And he suggests that you, you can begin to tell a story if you, once you turn to, let's say, what he calls primordial man, which would stretch from the early moments of, of human civilization up into the, the Renaissance. If you were to, to look at that very long period, he thinks you could find a broad development, which would be a cosmocentric development, that is, one that's centered on the nature of the cosmos. Hmm. He also says this is referred to as the man of. I mean, he's writing at a certain time, so listeners should just take man or the and just kind of relax um, a bit when he hears that. But it's, he calls it the man of nature. So in this understanding, or on this understanding, human beings take the cosmos to be, or nature, or anima mundi, the animated world, or the animate world, uh, to to be uh, vibrating, vibrating with a kind of energy, vibrating with life, uh, and the god or gods, uh, in, in some respects, spring out of this nature religion, and so do human beings. Right, so we, they develop various kinds of rituals and rites at various times that are largely n- nature mystical in their orientation. I'm going somewhere with this, <laughs> I swear. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Take okay, so let's take. Okay, so let us take that as our starting point. It's called? He calls this. You. Um, this is the, this is this is this is the starting point for his the story he wants to tell now. Around the Renaissance, or as we turn to modernity, something really quite astonishing happens namely, that that through the advent of modern science, through technology, and through related uh, factors, we begin to see something really quite novel emerging namely, the loss of a cosmos. As one writer puts it, the loss of the the, the closed cosmos and the in the birth of the universe. Mm-hmm. Pascal says that he's really quite horrified by this development. I wrote my dissertation on this movement, <laughs> so I'm I'm really <laughs> yes. quite I, I'm really fond I've been fond of it for about 15 years. So mm-hmm. how do we pass into modernity? How do we pass into the world that we now find ourselves and we a world we now take for granted? Mm-hmm. So Pascal's horrified by this because he sees that. There's no longer the, the, I might say, the bosom of nature, a place where human beings find and dwell among spirits and other Mm. enchanted beings. Mm. It's no longer an intelligible, understandable, beautiful vision Mm. of nature. Quite the contrary. It's mathematicized and mechanized so that when you begin to look out through your eyes from a dualist point of view at night, you see that... So to speak, way out there, the universe stretches seemingly indefinitely, or the multiverse stretches and stretches seemingly indefinitely to a point that is unfathomable. But it's out there. It's other. It's inert. It seemingly has nothing to do with you. It's, it's darkness. So we move from a, uh, an intelligible cosmos to an inert universe. So that's the first part the the... the, the the, the question of what is reality. The, the second part is that slowly but surely God withdraws from the world. <clears throat> this is especially poignant in the 19th century when certain writers, such as Matthew Arnold, began to talk about the waning of the sea of faith. It happens bef- starts to happen before that. We begin to see things like deism, the view according to which there's just uh, a, an omniscient, benevolent being who starts the universe in motion and, and 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 grants it universal laws of nature but otherwise stands back from the created world and has no part to play in it over time this is going to be just the idea that god is a hypothesis with which scientists and the rest of us can dispense mm. so there's no room anymore uh, at this point in time for deus or uh, divinity or the sacred it's the third development then is that there's the kind of birth of humanism where man becomes the measure of all things, as the famous quote puts it. So now we're in a situation where humanism reigns supreme. We think about human beings, we think of one another, we are involved in enmeshed, I might say, in human dramas of all kinds. This is why social media seems so addictive to us are to many of us at the same time nature being inert is now usable as resource Um, and heidegger the german philosopher speaks a lot about nature being standing aside as resource so this makes possible the exploitation of the earth and so now i'm getting around to your question the question is you might ask what what is it if, if, we're, if we're humanists of lettre, what is available to us when it comes to trying to answer the question about what does it mean for life? And there seem to be a, only a few things available to us. It's not deus, it's not aligning ourselves or approximating ourselves to the mind of God. And it's certainly not some kind of nature mysticism, though there are now movements, paganism, Wicca, and so on, moving mm-hmm. in that direction. Um, we can talk about things bursting at the seams. But right now I'm just speaking about the picture we've inherited. So we're left with work and technology. Basically we can find ways to work on the world while at the same time working on ourselves. we usually do it through uh, the explosive power of technology. Hmm. Once you take this on board, this picture on board, then you can begin to spin out why total work has been so powerful It's been so powerful because human beings think that they are agents standing in the world in such a way that it has to be improved. The way to improve it is through the work that they do. Therefore, they're going to work. We, I should say we here, apologies. We are involved in working on ourselves while at the same time working on the world. As a consequence, we end up generating some pretty spectacular vocabulary to describe this meaningful work socially impactful work purpose-driven work um, uh, and and so on the list goes on so this is we are i like your metaphor it's as if we're in a cage we don't realize that we're in a cage And it's only once people start sprinkling keys around us that we might actually open up the cage and see that humanism and total work, these twin forces, have not always been so. Secularism has not always been so. And there are such broader, more beautiful, more capacious, more generous and generative questions that we can ask ourselves. As we turn to the very possibility of developing a new vision, a new cosmo theandric mm. vision for tomorrow. Hmm.
1: Hmm. I um, I love the idea of developing a new kind of cause a new kind of cosmology. And one of the one of the rises that, that came to mind as you were as you were talking is um, a guy called Brian Swim. And he talks about how we are essentially, um, we, we've been born out of the, the primordial fible that the, the fible became, became the earth and became life and, and humans have kind of sprung from this. And I think that that was one of the, maybe one of the keys that helped me to, um, just to see that bigger mystery and that, that unfolding adventure of the universe that we're, that we're, we're literally a part of. Um, And I think that it really helps to, to, to step back, to kind of see the, to see the broader picture. Um, And for, for listeners kind of looking to learn more about this, I know that you've spoken about kind of the historical perspective of Total Work with, with Paul and and Ocean. So I'll definitely link to some of those podcasts in the show notes, but um, I'd really love to, to move the conversation to the, there was a thread on Twitter that, in some ways, I think planted the seed for this this conversation. And I think it, it began with me posing a, an open question of sorts that was inquiring how we might build a bridge to to meet these total workers or these th- these prisoners um, where they're at. And you then shared a framework that I thought was was really fascinating, and you called it the way of loss and the way of wonderment. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little and maybe any, um, any memorable moments or, or kind of other lived experiences that, that gave rise to, to those ideas. Mm. Let, me, let me tell a story.
0: It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a fictional story. Let's imagine that we are total workers. And so let's, let's imagine that we've been living our life according to human-centric pursuits of success, subjectively or objectively defined. <clears throat> let's say that that's rather like riding along on a horse. So let's imagine ourselves on a horse. <laughs> We're riding along in this horse, and lo and behold, our educational systems, our dominant institutions have been helping us maintain ourselves on this horse and to do so at a good clip. So we look in the distance, for example, and we see these neologisms such as careers and callings, and we take our horse in that direction. Or we have other terms such as. More education, more more education, more formal education, with a view to doing more meaningful work. So we take our horse in that direction. All along, though, what's really important is that the horse is just trotting along at a good clip. Everything in life is just going along. To change metaphors a little bit, swimmingly, Hmm. without any kind of hitch. Yes, once in a while, we have uh, something happens right something modest happens and we, but amazingly nimbly we turn the horse so that it goes past this happening and we continue to go on in this direction of that one so we progress in careers we we have more accolades we we have uh, more amazing sounding biographies and you might say that total, I mean, if you want to get some, some evidence for uh, the, the theses about total work, just go to any biography whatsoever, or most biographies today, particularly by those who are successful, and you'll just see that they are more or less I'm a total worker <laughs> and I've been successful, <laughs> right? You know, I worked at this company, that company, I did this kind of consulting, that kind yeah, of consulting exactly. and for 25, 25 years or 30 years or whatever else. Hmm. It's long. You know, it's what what gets read before a talk to legitimize the speaker. speaker is <laughs> legitimized through total work mm-hmm. so that he or she can speak <laughs> about total work usually. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, so back to the horse. So imagine one day that uh, you fall off your horse. Out of the blue, you get knocked off your horse. And this is, this is, this is spell, this is spellbinding. You are nonplussed. You look around you and thankfully your physical body is not hurt, but maybe it's the case that the horse got spooked and started trotting off in the other direction. You can't catch up to it. Or maybe it's the case and you have no idea where this comes from. That you, you restrain yourself and you don't get back on the horse. That is what I call an existential awakening. So it's as if all of our lives we've been going along on a horse. Life gives us the gift, a painful one, of knocking us off the horse. And something, quote unquote, within us is curious enough or strong enough not to get back on it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so that seems to me the, the starting point. When that happens, then there's, the, there's, there are, are, are usually two different or related paths, the way of loss or the way of wonderment. And though they seem totally different, they tend to be woven together at certain points. The way of loss suggests that I see that everything I cared about in connection with the horse is gone and I have no idea what to make of what is gone but I also know that I cannot go back to where I've come from that is no longer the way so the way of loss is also the way of being lost a time, Mm. so I take that to be the more or less the Buddha's experience when he goes outside the palace. Gautama, well before he's enlightened, he goes outside the palace. He'd been, pardon me, he'd been grow, he'd grown up in a very opulent family, a very wealthy family, and at some point he leaves the prison, and Mm. you might say, and he goes out and he sees an old man. Who's, who's aged, and he's just. This is the way of. He's existentially open, and he's what's been revealed to him is the way of loss. Ah, appears the human condition is such that it will suffer. That becomes the basis for his his searching to see whether or not that's true, whether there is nirvana, whether there is an extinction or extinguishing of that suffering, of that kind of mental suffering.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's the way of loss. Though the way of wonderment begins something like as follows. Aristotle says at the opening of the metaphysics, all human beings by nature desire to know. And I think that's wrong. (laughs) It's more like, it's more like by virtue of being knocked off the horse, some human beings desire to know. Mm. It is, it is what life gives us as a gift and through circumstance that it becomes possible for us to desire to know what we know not. Before we thought we knew. We thought we had it all figured out. We were on the horse. We were going to be the CEO or whatever. But, but now we're filled with wonderment. Wonderment is of the form I marvel in the face of what I cannot presently comprehend. And yet I know it's also that which lights my way. Mm. And I would say these are more and, and this may all sound somewhat theoretical, notwithstanding my horse <laughs> story, <laughs> my horsey story. <laughs> but I'm I'm as a philosopher, I'm simply trying to articulate or even give voice. Mm-hmm. To the experiences that I've had, and to the experiences that I've noticed that people with whom I have had. So it's merely an articulation of lived experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I could, at some point, if need be, I could tell some countless stories. Not countless, that would take a while, wouldn't it? <laughs> I could tell a fair number of stories to
1: operate these views. <laughs> but I wonder yeah. where. Yeah, so I, I mean, t- to me, it doesn't it doesn't feel theoretical at all. And um, when you talked about the the biographies, something that that came to mind was the 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 poet David White, who I had on the the podcast earlier on. He he talks about how at someone's funeral or their memorial, when the list of achievements is is read, the room is still cold, but it's only really when they start to talk about the things that they, that they loved, that the air quickens and the, the atmosphere kind of comes alive. And I, f- I feel like what you're, what you're kind of describing is that there are these, these moments in our life that maybe it's a, a dropped key or being knocked off the horse that, that cause ourselves to see the narrowness of uh, disenchanted and mechanistic and instrumental um, views of the world. And just thinking about some some examples that come to mind. Are, I know our mutual friend Paul. His kind of inciting incident was um, his health, and he he contracted Lyme disease. And I a couple of years ago, um, also when I was twenty nine, actually, I lost someone who was very close to me. And I've been I've been thinking a lot and kind of navigating the 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 journey of grief and for me it's it's been almost like a, a great storm that's stripped away everything that wasn't important and has left me kind of leaving uh, feeling broken open but also at the same time deeply connected to myself and to the world and i it's not that i'd wish these experiences of of loss on anyone but i think they do they do change us in a really kind of fundamental way when we get like firmly kicked off the horse and the horse just d- runs away to the horizon. <laughs> um, yeah, I found
0: the stories really, really moving. So thank you for telling me those stories. And moving not because you told me a lot about them, but because in a moment you can, you can see the whole. Another poet, William Blake, once said, to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven and a wild flower to hold infinity in the palm of your hand in eternity in an hour. Mm -hmm. There's something that it's like to just hear a little fragment about Paul or a little fragment about you and to to see or feel the the, the fullness or magnitude of of that experience. So thank you very much for, um, for sharing those with me. I am reminded of the way you said near the end of your remarks reminded me of a comment that Pierre Adot makes in his book on Plotinus who is a neo-platonic mystic he says that uh, the ancient sculptor was someone who didn't think about adding to his material as you might imagine no the ancient sculptor is the one who slowly took away in essentials to a point at which the essential was revealed. Mm. You might see that I probably made it into a story about Marwan Maharshi, <laughs> but that is <laughs> or some kind of like Advaita Vedanta story. But that is that is the way I think about it. Right? It's some the, the the gift that comes our way is not just the gift of the occurrence, the precipitating event or series of events. Mm. It is rather that paradoxically, the more we're able to lay ourselves bare, the more we're able to gently yet persistently let go of the inessentials, Mm -hmm. the essential identities. I am a worker. I am a doer. I am here to do. Mm. I am here to accomplish. spate of things i can die when my business is finished the one conversation partner once put it i can die when everything is fulfilled everything i I want to do is fulfilled once we start dropping the inessentials amazingly the very opposite of what we feared comes upon us to it that there's a kind of peace or understanding or our direction or fullness or openness or welcoming. All of those right here are understood synonyms more or less. Mm. That's, that's made all the difference in my life. I mean, I was a closed minded, I did tell this part of the story. <laughs> you know, I was a fairly closed minded, uh, hyper intellectual, uber arrogant human being <laughs> and and uh, and I, I have my shortcomings still i have, for sure for sure but the last 10 years have been a remarkable emotional and oh, i guess you'd say heart-centered transformation and i I can't help but feel genuine genuinely grateful for the way of loss and the way of wonderment Mm. they keep becoming fuller the more the pail goes down into the water the more water paradoxically there is Mm. to fill up the pail right As, as the bible says thy cup floweth over There's the experience, therefore, not of having given up everything, but rather
1: having given myself over to everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's almost as if these experiences of um, the words rupture and rapture come to mind, and it's like they kind of... Have a way of of clearing out the barriers that we erect around around our heart and our mm-hmm. our fears of being vulnerable and the the aspects of our identity that we cling on to. And I think the more we can either consciously remove them or have them removed by life experiences, the more that we can feel into that um, that more timeless part um, of of heart and 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 for me, uh, the word that I've been kind of sitting with in um, in my meditations and, and things like that has been this idea of, of reverence mm-hmm. and that the, the more that I kind of um, sink into that feeling, the more that I, the, the more that I have reverence for things and, and my meditation practice has gone from kind of trying to concentrate more and trying to, you know, have fewer mm-hmm. thoughts to just mm-hmm. um, sinking into that, into that place. And... I think that a question that is um, is kind of alive, right? Me is, is is alive at the moment for me is, um, or as you you call them, philosophical tipping points, which is a phrase I, I really like. Mm. Um, and it's it's how might we as as both as individuals and as communities facilitate and and integrate these kind of transformative experiences of of both rapture and rupture. And, and what do you consider to be the, the raw ingredients required um, to, to you know, maybe accelerate someone into their quarter-life crisis or to, to have their first mm-hmm. um, being kicked off the horse? Um, and do any kind of examples come great, to
0: mind? Great question. Actually, an example does come to mind. I'll come to it shortly. Uh, my bumper sticker would be
2: yeah.
0: no rapture without rupture. <laughs> <laughs> so this is not just going to be bliss 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 it's like no rapture without rupture hmm. there and a lot of traditions will speak about this ado has a beautiful uh, passage in, in in a book called the present alone is Happiness." he talks about what it was like to be a child and to to have been uh, ruptured from his ordinary sense of reality, ordinary consciousness, the consciousness that in Indian terms, not his, would be like absorption in objects. So, total work is the absorption in doings and, and attendant objects. We are absorbed and then fixated by them, fascinated by them, to the point at which we think that this is the totality of life. But a dose says that for some reason he he was ruptured, was ordinary consciousness, and and thereby opened up to you might call it a miracle. And he says, "What is most important cannot be expressed. What is most essential cannot be expressed." So (laughs) no—that's the beginning of my answer. No rapture (laughs) without rupture. As, as to how you do that, I think that is a, a kind of great game B question, you might say.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh,
0: and I have some thoughts that go back to Gurja. First of all, I think you would need um, various networks or communities of practice. By the way, this is a napkin thought to follow, mm-hmm. so it's just, uh, not going to be uh, it's provisional in nature or speculative in nature. Uh, so I think we would need to have communities of practitioners. Some of them would look like sanghas or like these uh, Buddhist communities, but others might look very different. So there are a number of people such as my friend Peter Lindbergh Mm -hmm. and and John Ravakey who are beginning to study we spaces, which is Mm -hmm. a Ken Wilberian term referring to kinds of group practices whose point and purposes, as I understand it, is to enable collective consciousness. So I think we'll need to actually be fairly innovative when it comes to new modalities or new Mm psychotechnologies and they'll, they'll occur. I I think sometimes in person or in the flesh, and sometimes they'll occur um, through uh, the the appropriate use of technological tools, such as Zoom perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that's one part That is, that there would be these communities of practitioners um, springing up here and there, or networks of them. But I also want to make a case for, this is a somewhat um, unpopular case for Gurdjieff, whom I've already mentioned, if only briefly. He thought it was necessary for the teacher to shock, that was his word, Hmm. the students. And you'd find this also in Zen. You find that there's a kind of, Catalytic shock that may need to take place, so it won't be enough people for people just to go to a circling event or to some wee space. I don't think. I think it will also be necessary for there to be the kind of, you might say, taxonomies of shock. (laughs) (laughs) you know, best practices in shock. I like (laughs) that. Yeah, best practices for shocking people, and by shock, I hope I'm not being misunderstood. I really don't mean. Uh, create something traumatic. I mean, uh, uh, do something so surprising that it is a, that it is the condition of a possibility for the existential opening I was referring to. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, what, what what comes to mind for me there is, um, I, I suppose, the the rites of passage and and vision quests. I, I went on a, a kind of ten day, um, I guess, a modern interpretation of a indigenous vision quest in Nepal. And I, I think the purpose of that, between kind of um, fasting and solitude and spending time in nature, it, it almost turns down the, the dial of the ego to let the, mm-hmm. to let nature and to let let something else kind of, of seep in. Um, and I, I, yeah, I really like the idea of uh, like creating these taxonomies or cartographies of mm-hmm. of different ways of of shocking the ego. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, I think the example you use was beautiful. The other example that was uh, for me off stage left and I'll bring it onto the stage is uh, a new experiment called the Manasque Academy, which we may mm. have both heard of its main site is in Vermont, United States. And there's also another one now in San Francisco. I've had some conversations with um, some of the people there. And what I found very fascinating about it is I think that they're actually trying to answer the question you just you just raised. Mm. Uh, that is they're actually coming up with a suite of practices or an ecology of practices, Peter Lindbergh would say, uh, whose, whose point point purpose is not just self-transformation, but a certain kind of collective or social transformation. I think that's a, a remarkably prescient experiment. So they're not just doing seated meditation, even though it's, it's, it's a Buddhist-inflected monastic academy. They're also involved in therapeutic modalities as well as in forms of relating. Mm-hmm. I call this an all-hands-on-deck approach. <laughs> <laughs> Wilbur, Wilbur calls it an integral approach, but I kind of like the. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: think I'm being fond of the metaphors about horses. This is base. Yeah, that, that's... that's I, I much prefer the the all hands on deck um, idea as well. And I, yeah, I, I actually had a call, um, funnily enough, just the other week with one of the the uh, someone who is currently living in the Monastic Academy in Vermont. And um, I'm considering going for a couple of months in in March next year. And it was really interesting to hear his perspective on what life is really like on the inside, and and how from the outside in the idea of kind of meditating and living in a community sounds incredibly appealing, but there's, there are a lot of really challenging aspects and how um, that kind of environment is almost designed to surface a lot, of your, a lot of your shadow and a lot of your insecurities and things that um, wouldn't otherwise rise to the surface. And I, yeah, I think it's a, it's a fascinating um, experiment. Let me add <laughs> a coda to because I think
0: based on my limited research, that this is one of the things that seemed to be missing from this, the late 60s and early 70s Experiments in collective living. Um, listeners might not know that from around 1967 to 1972, there was an incredible upsurge in the United States in communal living. I don't mean that everyone <laughs> lived on communes, but I certainly mean that there was uh, incredible interest in uh, Northern California, in Colorado, in the northern parts of Mexico, where I live. Uh, but there was, so far as I can tell, not there weren't rigorous best practices for how you investigate shadows. Uh, the 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 Jungian term you mentioned, mm-hmm. Nor were there. I mean, I, I, seated practice, for example, is I think a very welcome and, to my mind, an incredibly important part of your overall picture. So I, I'm seeing places like the new uh, the Monastic Academy as Um, more thoughtful ginger
2: uh,
0: and prescient experiments in collective living uh, with a view, not just as I said to transforming thyself, but also with a view to being able to, uh, as one of the persons put it there, uh, show up or that is to be responsible in the world. Mm -hmm. Given the, I mean, what was what's also been looming off stage is that if if Raymond Panikar is correct, then our our our, our human centric or our anthropocentric worldview that many have described is not only not sustainable, but also leading us to the very possibility, indeed the actuality, of the sixth extinction of plant animal life and the possible extinction of Homo sapiens. So uh, your question, the one you raised before, uh, about how we begin to catalyze the process of freeing people from their prison cells couldn't be any more timely (laughs) and needful. (laughs) Hmm.
1: Yeah um and what, one of the words that you used that I wanted to kind of circle back to was uh, the idea of psychotechnologies and I I saw that you're you're hosting a virtual meetup with Peter in a couple of weeks to mm-hmm. discuss the psychotechnologies of self transformation and I suppose something that I'm curious about is is what your mind qualifies as a psychotechnology I was I was in the, in the sea just before we kind of jumped on this call. And for me, in a way, I feel like my surfboard is, is a psychotechnology because it allows me to access that state of wonder and connection in the, in the ocean and, and feelings of flow. And so I suppose I'm wondering um, how, how you define them and also what role do these various modalities have to play in facilitating the, the process of self-transformation? Uh, great questions.
0: Let's begin historically again, given that I've laid out that particular map of modernity. Perfect. Uh, if, it's, if it is correct that modernity has been marked by humanism, I mean, the following concatenation of forces, humanism and secularism and total work and the inappropriate deification, so to speak, of technology. And then we can ask what is the basic understanding of human beings and the basic understanding is that we function in accordance with the logos we function in accordance with reason with uh, and reason is here understood uh, scientifically and intellectually this is the kind of reason or intellection that many of us have learned in and through school in like modern school mm-hmm. we've learned mathematics and uh, by the way none of these things are are, are are troubling me but i'm trying to speak to a lacuna or a gap in our understanding of ourselves so we've learned how to develop frameworks and you're good uh, basically forms of theoretical knowledge and know-how that'd be mm-hmm. the simplest way of putting this yep. i think this is wolf so we've developed a capacity to be total workers at google <laughs> or elsewhere right <laughs> or to be research scientists of a certain kind or to be academics of us or to be humanists like academics of a certain kind or to be uh, nimble and uh, visionary uh, executives but all of this doesn't even remotely touch the totality of being human the totality of what a human being could be so if we ask ourselves what is a human being? It is not merely intellection, uh, but it's as if we've been playing out the drama of intellection with deleterious consequences. Mm. So that brings me to psychotechnologies of, of transformation or self transformation. It's just one term I picked up, and I think it might be used by John Gervaisky, uh, mm. as a way of trying to describe a suite of. Exercises, practices, disciplines—what Ado called ascesis or spiritual exercises—all mm-hmm. of which have as their point and purpose not the indulgence of the mere intellect alone, but rather the transformation of the entire person. I like to use the word "heart" here, not to refer to emotions, but to refer to uh, uh, a unified faculty. Uh, a felt understanding, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So anything, so it's, it's pretty much a, a pretty, uh, try that sentence again. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a wide open tent. Psychotechnology <laughs> is a wide, is a, is a big tent. <laughs> to qualify, you simply <laughs> need to be able to demonstrate the, uh, whatever this, practice is, is actually capable of bringing about um, a dispositional shift in a person or in a group. Mm. So that's a very broad, uh, very broad understanding and rightfully so. I'm trying to give expression to what it feels like to, to meditate or what it's felt like for me to philosophize. I philosophize with people to use Malcolm Gladwellian terms for about 20,000 hours. I, mean, I just mean a lot, <laughs> or less I mean, I don't mean to quantify it, but we're living in the age of quantification, so I think, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, something has happened to me as I've opened my... In this case, I'm playing the role of the answer, mostly in, in this conversation you and I are having. But largely, I'm playing the role of the questioner. Mm-hmm. During philosophical conversations, something is happening to both of us in this I, thou space, the space of I and, and you. Whenever it's the case that I ask a question out of my heart, out of a, out of a space of unknowing fullness, and mm-hmm. when my interlocutor answers out of that same space, and you can't put your fingers on it linguistically. And even the conclusions we reach, which are linguistic in nature, certainly mean something. But what happened to us in and through philosophizing, not once, but twice and thrice and many times over, is, is inexpressible. And yet, for all that, very real. Completely ungainsayable. Hmm. So... I know that you asked two questions and now I'm getting old. (laughs) But the first one I hopefully I answered, which is that (laughs) psychotechnologies (laughs) refers to any often inexpressible way of of seeing what is happening here and now without seeing what is happening also being that which shifts the felt understanding of all practitioners. Therefore, surfing could certainly apply provided that one's surfing in a certain way
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if
0: you're trying to get somewhere if you're trying to get you know have the best day of surfing if you're trying to if it's an effortful Mm -hmm. uh, goal-oriented egocentric activity then it wouldn't count Mm -hmm. but if it's an experience of actually learning what it's like to live in concert with Nature, without necessarily being so apart from nature, if it's if it's basically a a meditation on Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, then yes, it more than counts. I'm afraid there was another
1: question. Uh, yes, yeah, so you, you you sort of you sort of answered it. Um, the something that I I guess I wanted to follow up with was um with the the idea of this tent of psycho technologies or this this emerging pantheon of mm-hmm. available um options out there. I I know that um, Ken Wilber, for example, has outlined a few frameworks in his integral theory, and I I forget exactly what they. I think it's it's wake up, clean up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, grow up, show up, for the greater right. mind. And those, those, those feel like <clears throat> um, certainly very uh, useful pillars, but are there any other kind of frameworks that you've come across that you think these, these practices um, fall under? Or do you tend to use... Candles? Yeah, now we're at the edge of my understanding.
0: <laughs> I'm giving a talk next month. On this so if you're asking <laughs> that then I might know more. But the proper Socratic reply would be I, I don't know. But here's one thing I I do know I think for sure. And this is that what does worry me is is that we're at, okay, so what 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 animates me is that we're at a point at which we might be engaged in what I might call the second axial age. Mm-hmm. This is not meant to be the age of Aquarius. I'm not trying to sound new agey. The first axial age refers to Socrates, Lao Tzu, Confucius, Jesus, and other figures who spring on the historical scene and amazingly who are inviting us to uh, a form of transcendence and to a form of introspection. it's, It's a pretty novel developments in a, a, a pretty, pretty amazing uh, new orientation uh, during the first axial age. I think we might be entering the second one then, which is I think something I, I can't say too much about, but it's just a hunch I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it might be also called a new cosmotheandric vision of reality. That would, that would be another, way of saying the same thing mm. so that's what animates me what worries me however is that i'm seeing a lot of, of practices spring up both individually and group wise and i don't necessarily think that in a number of cases that there is a, a telos or teloi mm. telos is the term that aristotle uses to refer i think quite beautifully to that for the sake of which something is We shouldn't confuse that with a goal, which is out there or dualistic understood. Your telos, when you're with your significant other, could be to love the beloved, to love the lover. Hmm. That is here and now, right? That, for the sake of which you're with this person, is to love that person wholly here and now. Now, we can take his understanding of telos and ask, are there really any good understandings of a telos or teloi? And the only one I've come across so far is, is, is Wilbur's fourfold framework.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what I like about it is that he definitely gives a lot of room for waking up, which is here understood in the Eastern sense. That is realizing and recognizing one's true nature. That is realizing and recognizing that, the non-dual truth that one is not a finite body mind. So total work is one way in which we come to identify with a finite body mind in the mode of the doer. Mm -hmm. So this is why, this is another reason why I'm involved in a thoroughgoing critique of total work. It's to not only wake us up to basic questions, That's the first step. The second step is to wake us up to the possibility that we are not doers at all. That according to that possibility, at the most fundamental level, reality is self-luminous. Reality is self-abiding. Reality is self-witnessing so to speak reality is contemplative reality contemplates itself and contemplates that which comes in to being through its own so to speak body the, the body of capital c consciousness so i like that because there are some spiritual schools i recently finished an article about this that are definitely involved in waking up. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to caution against is the very possibility that a number of these different psychotechnologies can be used by the ego for what Trumper Rupertse calls spiritual materialism. Mm-hmm. Listeners might not know that spiritual materialism refers to we, what we called here actually the spiritualized total worker.
1: <laughs> it's, yes. a, it's a total worker with a spiritual resume I've gone to these <laughs> retreats, I've gone to that retreat. I do yeah. yoga. As much uh, as I love being here in Bali, I, I definitely can resonate yeah. with that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. All
0: right. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. You know, you no longer speak about being at Facebook or having a certain startup. You speak mm-hmm. about books, the kind of spiritual experiences you've had. You, and you speak in a certain tone of voice, right? It's like, everything's really calm. It's all really calm. Everything's good. And the universe is benevolent. Uh, I was in Southern California for some time, so I, I know what that could be like. And that worries me because that that's actually ego-driven. Um, mm-hmm. you, if you're around people who are generally awake or enlightened, you, you find they are just bursting with energy. And yeah. some of them are rowdy, and some of them are raunchy and some of them are you know, more, some of them are calmer and some of them are more humorous they come in many different flavors because the personality doesn't dissolve when ego dissolves mm. uh, but that's my main concern that there can be uh, ego hijacking if we don't have a good set of boy, that is that for the sake of which we're involved in various uh, technologies. it can just be the next thing that's mm-hmm. cooler than um cooler than doing a startup a cooler thing now is spirituality it's cooler <laughs> now to meditate mm-hmm. it's cool to mm-hmm. go on a goenka 10-day vipassana retreat mm-hmm. uh, in northern california or southern california or somewhere else it's cool to be jack dorsey and i don't want to actually jack dorsey is a great example here uh, he's involved yeah. in a lot of different psycho technologies, but it's for the point purpose of of absorption and objects absorption and doings
1: and and and, and tracking his number of of hours oh, yeah. of meditation yeah. so during the meditation and getting metrics on his his meditation stats
0: <laughs> Yeah. so the point here hopefully yeah. is not to be um, to lack compassion i, I, I so I hope that I'm not misunderstood there. What I mean mm. is that in one respect, what's great about Jack Dorsey is that he's a Trojan horse. He's introducing people totally. to all sorts of practices and, and, and Buddhist meditation, which is now sometimes referred to as make mindfulness shouldn't just be denigrated. It's it's, it, it is the, it creates the possibility for an existential opening for someone. It's a door that someone might walk through. Mm. That said, uh, the danger is that we, we dwell there. As one spiritual teacher named Stephen Walensky says, we nest, so we don't want to use spiritual practices in the long run to nest in the ego. I think that's the pithiest way of putting my, my concern. It, mm. uh, if we don't have clearly laid out a uh, that for the sake of which we are here now involved in this.
1: Yeah, I I really like and resonate that idea of um, of uh, Teloy. T- 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 and um, you mentioned the the kind of optimistic uh, potential of entering a second axial age. And I've been listening to your friend John Viveki's uh, lecture series, and it's been it's been really blowing my mind in many ways. And i I'd thoroughly recommend that any listeners check it out on, on YouTube or there's a podcast version as well. Um, and, and I suppose, um, so what, what it feels like you're, you're saying, it reminds me of the, there's a sentence that I think I read in, maybe it was in your bio that was along the lines of enlightenment now is, is necessary, but not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I, f- I feel like a lot of these psychotechnologies that exist are ones of, To help us wake up and to help us um, become enlightened in some way, and I think that I've been particularly interested in those that help us to address our our shadow and a lot of the kind of repressed traumas from either childhood or or even from previous generations, and Mm -hmm. that's something that I feel like is is also emerging, but, but kind of more, um, more gradually. And do, do you have any thoughts, thoughts around that? I do. I, I'm glad you pointed that out because uh, it, it may have
0: appeared to be the case that I was, in, in my last remarks, trying to simply privilege enlightenment in, in that framework. Mm. And though enlightenment is very important to me, to my wife, I have come to the conclusion that it's not sufficient. Well, I do think it may be necessary for human beings in, in, in greater numbers to come to enlightenment, not the least because we're facing ecocide right now, and for other reasons as well. Uh, I want to come back to your question, though. I, I, th- I think. What is likewise concerning is to, to see that when you go to Zen, you're involved in a certain set of seated practices. Soto Zen calls it Shikantaza, which is just sitting. There's a lot of just sitting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And,
0: or, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Rinzai has, is a little more active and has a, a robust koan tradition. In both cases, though, there's a, there is, I don't want to say the word attempt here or effort. There is the sinking into silence, uh, sinking into silence before the emergence of the finite mind and body. So there's a, there's a possibly an experiential taste. Now, those are the main psychotechnologies, and I think that they are great for what they are consider for a moment Advaita Vedanta. It has a couple of technologies, psychotechnologies. One is a certain kind of guided meditation done by the teacher or guru. Another is called the satsang, which really is a certain kind of we space, a very old, old we space. It involves the, t- the student going up to a teacher like Ramana Maharshi, asking that person a question. It could be about anything, but usually they're questions about non-duality. The nature of reality. Ramada Maharshi's responsibility is to answer that person from the heart, given upaya, that is where that person is, and to use sk- skillful means to help that person to let go of misunderstandings and delusions. And I think Ramada Maharshi's responsibility is to give an answer that at the same time resonates with other people. We're listening at that time so it's quite an amazing possibility of transmission however those are only two psychotechnologies both of which are concerned with self-realization waking up or enlightenment so just as i've criticized <laughs> uh, some of these new practices springing up that might be uh, ego driven mm-hmm. if they don't have teloy so I might also even-handedly criticize some of these old-fashioned or long-standing traditions Mm -hmm. because of a certain kind of myopia, a blindness to to what some will call spiritual bypass, a blindness to uh, questions of trauma, a blindness to, well, what, what Wilbur was calling growing up and cleaning up. So I think we're just at the moment at which we're beginning to see that according to this all hands on deck approach, (laughs) that we'll need to be experimenting quite a bit when it comes to the the psychological dimensions. Um, Because I'm not quite convinced that we're quite as sophisticated there as we have become when it comes to all the psychotechnologies oriented toward enlightenment. So, in a way, then I think it could be a very messy period because looking at traumas and at shadows and at what Eckhart Tolle calls pain bodies Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and all that really messy stuff that yes could come from my own life or could come from my parents' life or could come from multi generations or if one believes in past lives then it could also come from past lives. This, I think, is going to be very messy. Obviously, there are certain uh, psychotechnologies concerned with that. There are healing practices ranging from Reiki. This is where the listener has to have an open mind, right? Because if it's not going to be cognitive, if it's not going to look like a Mm schoolroom, then it's going to look very different and feel very different. So one has to entertain the possibility that a shamanic practice uh, could actually heal, heal a trauma. One has to be open to the possibility that Reiki might actually have a Riki massage, might actually have access to something that you couldn't quite get at through discursive means. So I think that, that I think we're going to see a, a, a very, to use a mixed metaphor, a messy flowering mm. of, the, of those psychotechnologies uh, to a point in which they become. Um, up to the level at which the 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 enlightenment psychotechnologies are
1: yeah yeah absolutely and um i've been i i guess exploring and attending a few breathwork um Mm -hmm. ceremonies and experiences, and that to me feels like a particularly potent um i guess entry point for people who maybe don't want to start with with heavy duty psychedelics, but um Right. Is that pranayama and, or is it holotropic? Um more towards the holotropic kind of um, okay. side of things. Yeah. yeah. But but I but um, pranayama too can be can be very powerful depending on, on the type of exercise. Um and so what was I yeah, um I was going to I was I was going to ask you on there's, there's a quote one of the few quotes by Gurdjieff that I have heard is um, he says that uh, the humans are machines and that we must yes. become men and that um I know something that you've you've I've seen you talk about on Twitter that it's your desire not just to think about these these uh, these psychotechnologies but also to engage in the the various practices and mm-hmm. with with that in mind um, if you were to kind of hypothesize or imagine an all hands on deck academy or, or maybe a series of learning experiences designed to become whole and integrated humans what what do you think this kind of integral academy might look like and, and in what ways would it be very different to kind of the current way that we conceptualize schools and, and universities
0: wow that is a Good
1: question. (laughs) I don't know that I can answer
0: it, but I'm going to try my, 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 my first go at it. (laughs) I'm sure there's someone who from a legalistic point of view should say there should be a disclaimer about what I'm about to say. (laughs) I would just say careful when it comes to these things, because I'm about to mention these things are, we should say that, right? These things are pretty powerful. Uh, Holotropic breathwork is a very powerful journey for a number of people. Uh, This is why they've developed best practices around it. Uh, Michael Paul in his book, How to Change Your Mind, about psychedelics is very diligent when it comes to how he Mm -hmm. lays out the various journeys and trips he goes on. Um, So I'm just putting (laughs) a caveat before I launch. (laughs) launch. (laughs) All right, now I'm going to launch. (laughs) (laughs) I would actually begin, I don't know. It depends on where someone is. So it would be lovely if one had, um, this is where I think spiritual teachers or teachers of some kind are wonderful. Someone who can actually assess or see where you are. I really like Nirvana's line, come as you are. I, I, read, the, <laughs> I read them as being quite enlightened. <laughs> come as you are. Don't come as you'd like to be. Don't come as you would wish to be or shouldn't be or shouldn't be. Come mm. just as you are. That's how I like to begin a philosophical conversation. Mm. So, imagine something coming, someone or some people coming as they are. Then we have to, we really would need to have
2: uh, some, some
0: tuned in people who are a little farther along, so to say, who would say, Ah, oh, I see. These are the, this is as it were where you are. I'm starting to see that. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that you can, you can have a platform. So this is where I'm <laughs> skeptical of the, the, the platform view. I don't mm-hmm. know that you can just have a, have a, have a, have a, have a one-size-fits-all platform or a formal structure that people can go to I think there's an the intermediaries that you find in the monastic traditions you find in abbots and fellow monks they're helping kind of to sort, sort out where you are where are you in the path of obedience mm-hmm. right? where are you in the path of, of humility so let's say that's the first point um, you start to have they didn't mean to be a teacher. Maybe I'm using that in the wrong sense. I just mean people whom you trust who are able to, to gauge, to, to, to point you, to, to begin by pointing you. All right, so where might they point you? If, if one has never had uh, any kind of practice, uh, even though some people like Rupert Spire and Francis Cecile, who are two um, Advaita Vedanta teachers and who believe in what's called a direct path, even though they, they would say that the direct path is possible for human beings today, I am someone who thinks that we would just start <laughs> with an indirect path. That is, uh, if you've never meditated before, I would begin with a, a concentration, absorption, meditation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: and Zen, they'll start you out with counting. You count the breath, uh, one on the inhalation, two in the exhalation, three inhale, four exhale, and so on and so forth until 10. This is not a game to see how many times you can get to 10. <laughs> it is trying to teach you concentration. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the Zen term is Joriki, it's a concentration energy. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's an absorption object, it's true. There are any number of mantras or uh, candles you can look at, they're all uh, trying to cultivate, they're trying to dewild the mind. And allow it to gently rest on an object as the starting point. You're about to ask something or say something.
1: Yeah, just I was just wondering, is is that this um, roughly equivalent to the idea of dharana in the Vedantic tradition?
0: Right, that's a practice. Exactly, that's a practice. Yeah. Yes. So I would start someone when I philosophize with people. I usually start them with if they haven't meditated before, and we usually meditate before philosophical conversations. I'll start them mm. off with um, a concentration meditation. Uh, and the reason is that it's not too crazy, right? Um, one of the things that worries me about, and I'm going a little bit loosey-goosey here. I realize that my, my thoughts. <laughs> one thing that worries me about the Goenka 10-day retreats, and I have been on one of those, and I know that you've been mm-hmm. too, and I know that we both benefited from them, mm-hmm. is that you're taking people who maybe have never meditated before, and you're putting mm-hmm. them in what is modeled on a monastic oh, schedule yeah. and structure, Yeah, and you're not giving them any kind of, a theory in the important sense, a theory of no self or anatta, a theory of anicca, of the nature of reality, which is changeable. None of that. And, and people, for the first time, probably after having been total workers for much of their lives, were put in situations that are, that continue at each and every point to turn them back and have them look at their minds. And it's very scary. And so mm-hmm. there can be some pretty non ordinary experiences that happen. You know, dissociative experiences, for example, or, you know, in worst cases, psychosis. So that's why I wouldn't, I would never start someone with uh, any kind of 10 day silent retreat. Start with concentration, right? Learn to, as the Upanishad says, learn to quiet the senses, the sense doors, the sense perceptions, and learn to quiet the mind none of that is, is asking you to take on board some weird metaphysics yet or <laughs> of the kind that we've hinted at. None of that is asking you to go really deep or to go really high. It's just asking you to, to begin to, to, to begin to investigate your mind in and through realizing very humblingly. So how, how, how wild it is, mm. how overgrown it is. How, how, how little it knows itself! How little it is aware of itself! So that would be that would be my starting point. Then I would, you know, then I would, you know, slowly monitor. And 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 if someone is really earnest on this path, then there would be yes, the path of enlightenment, and that would go from the absorption objects to the absorption of the source. Right, as Ramana Maharshi says, "Go back the way you came. Go back to the source." Or as Zen would say, "Right, inquire deeply into the Dharma principle, the standard of practice here is enlightenment. So that would be something that one would kind of gradually come to through wonderment, I think, above all else, and not through effortfulness. But then in my own life, I've found that that's, as I said, not sufficient. So the school I'd be building would have people who are deeply steeped in healing practices or in different psychotechnologies uh, psycho of, of, of healing. And that would be a different thing as well. So I'd put that in there. And I know less about that, therefore I'll speak less about it. I would also want to put in there something that we've been hinting at, which would be something that um, Annalise Adelberg at the Luminous, Institute, Luminous Awareness Institute in the Bay Area is, is, is very much involved in, which is practices of relating. Mm-hmm. So, wouldn't just be the case that you are seated on a meditation cushion and have your eyes closed around other people? No, what happens when you actually get involved in genuine forms of relating with other people? A, a lot will come up. There's a story that Jack Cornfield told, I believe, about his being uh, going away for, I don't know, so, some years and, 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 and sitting in silence and meditating in silence in Southeast Asia. And then he said, when he came back to New York City, it all came back.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> So there's not something wrong with him. There must be something that, that practice is not really capable of getting at. Mm. So there must be the case that there are practices of, of, of wise relating, we can call them today, by which we're able to see the ways in which we're caught, the ways in which we, we, we turn away from other people. And right now, it's, it's happening at a, at a, in an ad hoc way, right? You bump into someone on the street or you receive an email and something something doesn't sit right with you. That happens to all of us. But I wonder what would happen if we actually had uh, uh, best practices or taxonomy of forms of wise relating that enable us pretty expeditiously to see how it is we've been around other people which are what are our patterns of thought and behavior here what ways are we feeling about this person or these people so i'll be the third one and then i probably want to get around to genuine engagement with the world or showing up or or taking responsibility as the monastic institute puts it or living one's vow mm-hmm. as, as the head teacher sure you puts it there mm-hmm. the thing i'm worried about here is that I don't want us to get ahead of taking, taking responsibility. Some people ask me what good work would look like uh, after we've gone through a full critique of total work. And <laughs> I've heard that question often. And I, I, I get a little bit worried that we're short-circuiting the process of knowing thyself in oneself, through oneself, and with others. But my short answer would be that I don't, even though I know we need to act, given ecocide, side, the other part of me says we must take our time here because if we get engaged in actions that we're now going to call work, then we might fall prey to the same misunderstandings that had us caught in the first place.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I find myself, this is the kind of, I think we've arrived at the limits of my understanding at this mm-hmm. point, the limits of what I've thought about.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But when it comes to acting in the world, I find myself torn. Mm. On the one hand, I think it's necessary and incumbent upon us. On the other hand, this is almost like a joke, I don't think we're ready.
1: (laughs) 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 Do you see what I mean by not being ready? Yeah, I I do. And and I think what what comes to mind when I I think about what maybe a post-total work world Mm. is... Um, or maybe we're moving towards this, this collective, this collective awakening. And I, I, I kind of like the, I like the ring of the idea of total Dharma or the, or the, mm-hmm. the concept of Dharma that is talked about in the, in the Gita. And I think that that really resonates with me. And I think that was one of my, my knee jerk reactions to your concept of total work that a lot of us do have this very deep kind of soul level desire to express our gifts and to be seen in the world and to make that that individual contribution. And I think that the degree to which we're able to tune into ourselves and to to go a, a few further steps towards really waking up, I think it becomes easier to tune into what our our kind of dharmic contribution to the world is. But I completely uh, agree completely. that it can be, yeah, it can be easier to, to just fall back into the same. Uh, uh, the way you uh, described it, I completely <laughs> agree with. it. now I'm getting a bit excited. Uh, Sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I also agree with you there. Uh, what, what, so I, you said all that you said. If, if someone were to wind back the tape, is non total work inflected? None of the words are total work inflected. So so far so good. What I mean, however, is that if one sh- bypasses the process of the deepest possible investigation, the deepest possible investigation of what it is to know thyself, <laughs> knowing thyself what the self is—is there a self? Is it, it capitalist self, and so on? If if one really does sure short- and 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 the healing modalities and relating and and being together and conviviality and fellowship and so on if if one short circuits that then the the danger is that one simply becomes something like a a spiritual materialist that is Mm -hmm. one hasn't really gone to the depths and seen oh i'm still very much attached to being a doer and for my life to have mattered owing to what it is that i did i think that has to be dropped As as Lao Tzu says in the Tao Te Ching, the the, the Taoist sage does what needs to be done and then forgets it. Mm. There's no recollection. There's no credit taking. Imagine, Imagine a different world in which people, when it came time, did what needed to be done. And indeed, we're always doing what needed to be done but they didn't regard themselves as the doers so much as that through which the doings happened. And at the end, they couldn't say, and, I'm sorry, they couldn't say, and I did that. That thought and that feeling did not arise. It didn't need to arise. There was nothing, there was no one there for whom it could arise. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the ego didn't raise his hand afterward and say, Ah, I did that.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, and, and, and let me add one other remark, and that is that what also concerns me is that people start to narrow it down to something like paid work too quickly. Yep. yep. If I care for a child, if i uh, lend a hand if i go and help people i didn't even say volunteer because that sounds a little bit like work if i go and help people right if if i am uh, creating a polis that is a, a genuine community uh, where people are earning are committed to living the common good together. If I'm doing any of those things, I, w- I wouldn't yet want to call any of them work. Whereas I think today, most of those things I just said would be called work in some way or another. Mm-hmm. And of course, many people would say, okay, now, Bub, how are you going to make a living? And I feel as though, as I've been trying to argue over the years, Livelihood is a question that we can talk about. It's a lovely question, but we shouldn't try to get everything we want out of life and jam it back into the livelihood question. So that's what I mean when I say that collectively, I'm not sure that we're ready. It doesn't mean that we don't have the loving the, the loving desires to to be unto one another, the loving desires to love thy neighbor as thyself in actuality. I have that, Hmm. but there's care to be taken that we don't keep carrying, carrying in egoic self-congratulation before and after any of those acts or processes.
1: Yeah, that 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 resonates with me too. And the um, the quote that you shared made me think of something that I I've been thinking about a bit myself, which is from the from the Gita. And Krishna talks about this this notion of ambition and splitting it up into a a noble intention or an aspiration and kind of grasping hold of the outcome. And he he says something along the lines of uh, we must be willing to to let go of the fruits of our labors. And I think that sounds to me ex- like exactly what you've been speaking to, and it's when we when we grasp onto the the fruits of our labors that we get um, sucked into the kind of total work narratives, and yeah, that feels like a, a good litmus test for me. Um, so i'm just I'm, I'm just noticing <laughs> just noticing the time, and I feel like that might be a nice place to to wrap up, but before we do um I'll be including links to your, your websites and the, the sub stack and Twitter um, in the show notes. But where would you recommend would be the best place for some listeners to find you and maybe continue the conversation?
0: Yeah, listeners can find me on my website, which is andrewjtaggart.com. They can also find me uh, via my newsletter, which is andrewjtaggart.substack.com or they can also find me on Twitter and I think it's at Andrew J. Taggart. I think there's a theme here. <laughs> this is before I got involved in <laughs> meditation. <laughs> Sounds very self-like. <laughs> uh, email does tend to be the best way if someone wants to correspond and would be happy to do that. So I'm still... Not the most able at social media. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much for the conversation today. It was re- really quite lovely and, and moving, and, and it was a wonderful exploration.
1: Okay, perfect. Well, I'd like to um, like to close with a Rilke line that I, I really like, and it goes something along the lines of: "Try to love the questions themselves and live them now." perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. And with that in mind, what might be the question that you feel like you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with?
2: Wow,
0: that is an incredible quote. (laughs) 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 I feel humbled. All right, well... I live three questions right now. What is wisdom? What is living wisdom? Mm-hmm. And I asked that of myself. Second question is: what is the nature of reality? And, and how does that include me? And the, the third question is a question that the late Fred Rogers would have asked. How do I love? Mm. How do I love everyone? Uh, and so I'd, I'd actually ask listeners to consider two questions. One is a meta question. And the meta question is, what is the question to which you are most vibrantly alive? Mm. And the, the other question is also a meta question, given them I'm a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> what is the question that we've been neglecting or overlooking or forgetting to ask a question that could make all the difference when it comes to how we
1: lead our lives. Well, that is a beautiful place to end this conversation. Um, it's It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you so much, Johnny. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's j-o-n-n-y dot life.